Hey everybody, it's me, Josh, and my pick for SYSK Selects this week is the one we did on the 10,000-year clock. Uh, just looking back, I think it's probably one of the coolest episodes we've ever done, and uh, it's just kind of me and Chuck operating on all cylinders, talking about something we're super jazzed about. So we hope you enjoy it, and my apologies for being sick in this one. It's still good. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. And that makes this stuff you should know. That's right. How are you, sir? Besides <laughs> a little under the weather. Uh, other than that, I'm fine. I've got that, um, you remember in the uh, happiness audio book, we talked to that uh, guy David Pierce, the transhumanist, yeah. about separating nociception, pain, like the ex- physical experience of pain. Yeah. From suffering, like just getting rid of suffering. Right. Like, I've reached that point in being sick where, like, I, I, I see how intertwined the two are. Like, I just keep <laughs> saying, like, woe is me. Like, yeah. I am suffering. It's pretty bad. So do you feel bad, like, in a flu sense, or is it just the head full of stuff that makes it unbearable? Uh, no, luckily I don't have any flu symptoms. Yeah, because that's what puts me under is when you you literally feel those aches. In your skin is, yeah. is really sensitive. But a bad cold was just, just what I had before yeah. you. We're taking turns. I don't know if I got it from you or not. I doubt air, it. Air travel yeah. often will do that. So, yeah. I, I, got, I got mine after air travel, too. Jerks. Stupid air travel. <laughs> it's 2012. You know, you don't. Can we do better with the recirculated air on a plane? Maybe. Yeah, just like surely you can crack a window a little bit or something, right? <laughs> Get some fresh air in there. There's got to be something. All right. So, um, I guess we should do this one. Yes. We're stalling. No, we're not. This you know why we're stalling? Is, what? Because we got all the time in the world, man. Slow down. That's what I was saying. Oh, yeah, and I'm just reiterating. Well, thank you. There's After no, there's disagreeing. No hurry. There's no hurry, Josh. Well, let's just stay here for a little while. We're in the foundation of the long now. <laughs> uh, you're misreading. It's the long now foundation. I like the foundation of the long now. No, it's just you know the why? Because it's now. longer. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's a couple extra words there. Named by Brian Eno. Yeah, the um, great. Musical composer, father maybe of techno, producer. I think he's called a rock musician in this article. Well, the guy, uh, I watched a SETI talk from Alexander Rose, who you said is the project manager. Uh Of the Long Now Foundation's um, Clock of the Long Now Project. Which we're going to talk about. And when he was doing his presentation, he mentioned Brian Eno, and he said, who is an ambient music guy. (laughs) Is that what he called him? Yeah. I was like, dude, that's Brian Eno. Come on. What did he write? Um, What was his album, Music for Spaceports? Something like that. That was a solo thing after Roxy Music. Yeah. No, wait, Brian Eno was in Roxy Music? Yeah. I know Brian Ferry was. They were. And they famously butted heads. And so Brian Eno left, I think, after one album, did solo work until he hooked up with U2 and the Talking Heads and as a Uber producer. Cool. Man. Way to go, Chuck. Thanks. That was a great explanation of okay. Mr. Brian Eno. Of the ambient music guy. Right. But yeah, you're right. He's the one who coined the um, the name The Long Now. Um, and uh, 
this whole foundation, this group of people, the Long Now Foundation, or mm. the foundation of the Long Now, <laughs> um, are dedicated to forcing, um, hoisting upon humanity, like you were saying, like just the the idea of slowing down, of taking a longer view of everything, the Long Now. Yeah, and I, I think the way they put it was <clears throat> to try and think in the t- terms of if you live to be 1,000 years old. Right. So long-term thinking for the world is better than short-term thinking. Although, I would argue you need both. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, because it's like, oh, we don't exactly live to- <laughs> when should I get out of the yeah. way of this speeding car? Yeah, we don't live to be a 1,000. Fact no. is. But I do like you, the spirit wait, behind it. I have a question for you. Okay. Would you want to live to be a 1,000 years old? If we aged like normally and would be like... Right, you don't turn into like the, the dungeon master from the <laughs> from the cartoon. Uh, you mean if it was like a thousand years old would be the equivalent of like a hundred? Sure. Heck yeah. Would you really? Yeah. Why not? Well, I can think of a lot of reasons why not. Name one. Um, boredom. <laughs> You'd be worried about boredom. Yeah. Wow. A boredom. I mean, think about all the stuff you can do in a century. Now multiply that by ten. I know. There's it's a like finite all the stuff amount of stuff to do on this planet. I just well, if I, you, I think everybody would end up with huge, massive drug problems by age four hundred. <laughs> you might be right. Yeah, but hey, a four hundred year old should be able to handle his his H. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, uh, despite how you feel about living to a thousand, Long Now Foundation is, um, they're kind of into that way of thinking. Like you said, that long-term thinking can lead to short-term gain. And a good example of this is, is climate change, right? Sure. Yeah. So, um, I think one of the, the people who are on the side of, or who are in favor of taking great action yeah. against climate change, would would say that um, if we can take steps now, if we can think further out, then you know we'd be able to mitigate this. Yeah. But we're not. We're thinking about very immediate concerns, which some are are reasonable, like sure. economic concerns, that kind of thing. Yeah, not poo pooing it, but it's just two schools of thought. Exactly. So um, you can kind of understand where the Long Now Foundation uh, would side or sit on that um, debate. But what they figured out is that. We basically, we humans, to think like this, we need something to um, lead our minds in that direction. Because just saying, like, man, what's it going to be like 10,000 years from now? Right. It's like, who cares? You know? I, yeah. I'm thinking about food. <laughs> like, I am, literally, right now. I just posed the question, and I'm thinking about food already. Right. Which so, is not long term. Right. But if there were, say, like, a 200-foot clock in front of me, that I knew was designed to tick off 10,000 years, yeah. I might take a much longer view of things. A beacon, if you will. A beacon, indeed. So the Long Now Foundation has undertaken its flagship project, and there's a bunch of other projects, too. Yeah, I saw that. Um, called the Clock of the Long Now, a.k.a. the 10,000-year clock. Very cool. Yeah. I it, think it's pretty awesome. I, I can tell you're a fan. Well, if, if for no other reason than to uh, get attention... For, for their foundation and their their uh, school of thought, you know, right, and that's the whole point. Yeah, like, it, it, and it's gotten some pretty good attention. I think uh, a lot of people have heard of the ten thousand year clock already, um, but it's actually 
being created, and one's already done. Yeah. A tabletop version. Ta- yeah. Tabletop <laughs> meaning eight feet. But right. Yeah. The, well, the prototype. Yeah. Um, and the whole thing was proposed by a guy named Danny Hillis um, back in 1995, uh, wrote in a, uh, like a Wired Magazine scenarios article the the idea for this the concept behind it yeah and um there's become this kind of rallying cry that he wants a cuckoo to come out every millennium everybody right. that shows up in every article i've read on it that's what they say that's his thing like he wants a cuckoo to come out on the millennium what's crazy is i don't see anywhere in here that there actually will be a cuckoo yeah i didn't see that either no so poor danny hellis will yeah. have to wait <laughs> But he's the, he's the guy behind the Long Now Foundation, right? Yeah. The first thing that I notice when I look uh, at any of the writings about them and the Long Now Clock is the zero that they just placed in front of the current year. So in 1995, when he wrote that article, he proposed, you know, not that they actually change it, but the way they look at things is zero one nine nine five, and just seeing a date written in that way kind of makes me breathe a little relief because all of a sudden 2012 doesn't look like the future 0212 looks like oh well we got a long way to go like we're backwater yokels time wise yeah does that make sense oh yeah totally because i think they said we've been around like civilization's been around for ten thousand years or so so essentially this clock would represent our entire past well yeah moving forward yeah it would place us Directly in the middle of yeah, the two. Which I love. So, which I was um, curious about why they're not starting over then. Why not start a zero year zero. when that, Clark's, that clock <laughs> um, starts? You want to name it a Clark? It's, don't a, you? Clark. it's a millennium <laughs> it's a Clark. Year Clark. Yeah. Uh, maybe because they just, they don't want to uh, disrespect, you know, time served. Yeah. If you will. But also, so what they've come up with is a clock then that will. Run until the year 12,000, 12,000, 12, 12, yeah. depending on how, how fast they can get this thing built. Yeah. Um, but the, that's their idea is to come up with a 10,000 year clock, a clock that will run without, uh, human intervention. Yeah. For 10,000 years. One, um, that can be easily understood by anybody, um, which I think that they could, have done something slightly different with the design. Like my eyes cross when I look at like the, the dial face. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm living in zero two one two. Agreed. Um, but there, there's some challenges to all this, right? Like you, there's humans haven't really made too many things, um, that have lasted 10,000 years yet. Yeah. Why should this be any different? Well, you, you outlined a couple of the base. I think they have the, Five basic principles they were aiming for. And you outlined uh, a couple of them there. Uh, to work relatively free of regular maintenance was one. Right. Uh, simple enough to maintain that if all of a sudden we go into some post-apocalyptic world where there's no technology, we could still maintain it. Right. They were saying they estimate it couldn't go back prior to the Bronze Age. But as okay. long as we have Bronze Age technology, Boy. which began in 3500 B.C., yeah, and the, the hallmark of the Bronze Age is metallurgy and... Um, and black magic and, and <laughs> um, metal or separating ores from metal and um, uh, metal alloys. Okay. Well, if dude, if we're sent back beyond the Bronze Age, then this clock's not going to matter very much. No. You know what I'm saying? Uh, a close inspection of the operational principles should reveal 
the principles behind its operation. It's a little bit of wordplay there. That sounds like Danny Hillis. And then, uh, what else? Uh, no matter when someone comes upon it, it should be able to be improved upon. And finally, it should be able to be constructed s- small enough to fit on a table. That's with the prototype. So, success. Yeah, success. And then for the rest of them, they're, they're kind of abandoning that. Because, like we said, this thing's going to be, the one that's being constructed right now is going to be 200 feet tall. Yes. Um, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, powering such a clock, <clears throat> there's, if, if you're looking at 10,000 years, I think it, it seems kind of likely that civilization will suffer at least one collapse. Sure. If not several. And we have no idea how far back humans will be set. Hopefully not before the Bronze Age. But, right. Um, so this clock needs to somehow uh, gain power from the environment. And uh, Danny Hillis came up with a bunch of different ideas, right? Like uh, atomic power. What's yeah, the most of them. That? Uh, that's poor manageability and transparency. Yeah. Most of these are scalability. Yeah. Like they may have been good ideas, but they're just, what, too large to fit their, their needs? Either that, they're, either they're too big or they, um, they're already, like they're perfect for this clock, but you can't gotcha. use that to power maybe if, if something needs, if something's added on that requires more power. Right. TS, you already are using all the power you can. Or you can't scale it up. Right. And it wouldn't work the same. Maybe exactly. Kind of, okay. So that would be chemical, uh, pre-stored potential, uh, geothermal, tidal gravitational changes, and seismic and plate tectonic. So those all had poor scalability. Right. So says Hillis. Um, you can't use pressure change because you would need like a bellows or a seal. You want this thing to be as um, simple as possible. Yeah. Because as any engineer knows, the more moving parts you have, the more parts you have that can break down. Sure. Um, and uh, the flow of water. That's a good one, right? There should be water on the uh, on the planet for yeah. 10,000 years. Sorry, you're exposing the clock to water. So yes. inherently, water is a self-defeating uh, energy source. Same with wind. Any kind of exposure to weather, that's why this thing is buried inside of a mountain. Right. So what did he come up with? He, he came up with two ideas to power this. Humans. That's one. Yeah, human winding. That's one. A novel idea. The other is temperature change. That's right. But yeah, he wanted. He said his favorite was human winding because it fosters responsibility for the clock. Yeah, which is a great, great idea, I think. Because ultimately, the clock is for humans, even though it's sequestered in a mountain and yeah. it can run by itself for ten thousand years if no human ever lays eyes on it. Right. It's for humans, and we'll explain all that. If it sounds like we're uh, talking out of both sides of our mouths, we'll explain all that by saying, "Doesn't need humans, yet it does need humans." I bet people can't wait. I can just feel the tension. I know. (laughs) The hairs on the back of their necks are bristling. All right. So for the prototype, um, it's sort of like an old school clock in a way. Uh, They use two uh, helical weights, uh, similar to the weight gravity systems, just like clock towers, old clock towers. Right. And they drive the energy going up and down on these tubes, which will drive the pendulum, right? Yeah. Um, And ultimately, the, the prototype, the drive... Assembly, uh-huh. I guess you'd call it. Um, it served its purpose. It was a prototype in that it said, okay, we need to do something different. Right. And they have. But for the prototype, yeah, there's helical weights, which I'm not familiar with. Are you? No. Okay. Um, but the the um, 
prototype also still had like a solar synchronizer, which we'll talk about later, um, and a pendulum, which we'll also get a little more into. But the pendulum is uh, kind of key to keeping the time. Maybe we should do that now. You want to? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so back in the 1600s, people were trying to figure out how to keep time better than they had been, more accurately. Um, and somebody, a, a Dutch astronomer, back in that day, the best astronomers were Dutch. Christian Huygens. Uh, he said, hey, why don't you try using a pendulum? Because a pendulum has a pretty cool property in that the only two um, things that affect the swing of a pendulum, mm-hmm. nothing else affects the swing of a pendulum, not changes in temperature, not uh, humidity, mm-hmm. not anything else, except the force of gravity yeah. and the length of the pendulum. I didn't know this. Well, it, I didn't either. Um, if you take a pendulum and put it just about anywhere on Earth, you're going to find that the gravitational field is is so close to the same sure. that a pendulum will swing the same way anywhere on Earth. At so, the same rate, too, right? Right. So what affects that rate, the period, which is the, the amount of time it takes for a pendulum to swing all the way from one side to the other. Right. So not just one side. It's it's both. That's right. a, a pendulum's period. So really, the only thing that affects it is um, the length of the pendulum, right? The shorter the pendulum, the faster uh, they go. The longer the pendulum, usually, uh, the um, the longer it takes. And once you get a pendulum going, which doesn't require a lot, it'll keep going. Yes. It takes a very small amount of energy input to keep it going, right? Yeah, which is perfect for something like a 10,000-year clock. Right. So if you put a pendulum and attach it to something called an escapement, right? Yeah, this is the part I got confused on. Okay, well, check this out. So you have a pendulum, and you figured out the exact length you need for yeah. a pendulum's period to take one second, to tick off one second on, on a second hand. That's exactly right. Okay. So you can attach the pendulum to this thing called an escapement. An escapement is just like a wheel with some gears to it, right? Okay. And these gears are attached to the second hand. Okay. Okay. And the escapement's always wanting to go forward, but it's being held in place by the pendulum. Okay. Which is attached to an anchor, but we'll just call it the pendulum, right? Okay. So as the pendulum swings one way, the, the escapement gear is being held in place. Mm-hmm. And it's, when it swings the other way, which is the end of a second, the pendulum opens up, allowing the escapement gear to tick forward one tooth, yeah, thus moving the second hand forward one movement in a second. Oh. So that's how you do it. And if you're very, very clever, you can design the escapement gear so that as it moves, uh, as it escapes, it also nudges that anchor that's attached to the pendulum, transferring energy back to the pendulum to keep it swinging. And that's basic, the basics of a clock. Of a, a mecha- pendulum A mechanical clock. clock. Right. Yeah. And that's what they use for the 10,000-year clock, too, wow. very smartly and appropriately, too. Yeah, I love how when they do design something to work 10,000 years, they go back to Bronze Age and, well, this wasn't Bronze Age, but a lot of just old mechanical technology. Well, yeah. I mean, it's. It, I think... Uh, We've advanced in a lot. I mean, if you're going to make a digital clock, yeah, we know what we're doing, but right. how are you going to power it? You want to just use some really old, perfect technology. Exactly. That's called long thinking, Josh. Right. So we've got uh, winding and temperature changes, differences in temperature changes that are powering this clock now, right? That's right. Um, and then those are the two principles that are powering the clock 
there are different parts of the clock that need to be powered. Like your favorite, the Geneva wheels, right? Yeah, Geneva wheel sounds intimidating. A Geneva drive until you look it up on YouTube and see what it is. And it's really just, um, and it can come in all kinds of shapes. And in this case, it's sort of the shape of a star. Uh-huh. And it's, uh, imagine each point of a star has a notch cut in it. And sitting underneath that is a, is a wheel, a drive wheel that spins with a, a peg coming out of it. Right. And it slips into the uh, little slot on the star, advancing it one little click, keeps turning and, and spins out of it. And then by the time it comes back around, it slips back into the next one. So it's just a slow ticking around in a circle. Right. And so there's, uh, I think, 20 of these for the big clock, but they're designed with a bunch of holes in them. The pins and holes system, basically. Yeah. Which essentially is making a mechanical Babbage, Babbage difference engine. Yeah. Like an early what? computer, like a punch hole computer. Yeah. Right? That's what um, they use before calculators. They use mechanical summers or adders. Right. And this is you, but it's adding in binary ones and zeros. Yeah. So it's carrying out digital calculations through mechanical means, which is Pretty astounding. Cool. Yeah. And they're using this astounding technology right. to power basically what, um, in this article that we we're reading, it's the world's slowest computer. Yeah. And that computer is being used to calculate uh, an algorithm that will produce a different chime using 10 different chimes or two bells. Yeah. Um, so that this thing supposedly will never make the same chime twice. Yeah, I think it, the algorithm maxes out at 3.5 million chimes, of course, designed, composed by Brian Eno. Right. The ambient music guy. Right. <laughs> and uh, and that, that doesn't have anything to do with the, the powering of the clock. That's just the chimes. No, but the dirty secret of the Long Now Foundation is that 3.5 million different possible chime tones. Yeah. Uh, or combinations is about ninety thousand days short of ten thousand years. Oh, really? Yeah. What's ninety thousand days in years? I don't know. Do you Divided have a, by? Uh, do you have a binary adder? Three hundred sixty-five. <laughs> we need some Geneva wheels in here, stat. Well, they're not telling anyone that, though. Obviously, no, they did actually. Oh, a, did they? Wired. Yeah, they're like you know, this thing's not going to chime every day, so I'm sure it'll be fine. Okay. But basically, no one's speaking to Brian Eno right now. <laughs> He's been demoted to ambient music guy <laughs> from legendary producer. Yeah. Uh, so the prototype, that's the prototype. It's eight feet tall, roughly eight and a half. It is um, at the Science Museum in London. You can go see it there. Yep. And it first started ticking on December 31st, 1999, or 01999, yeah. if you're a long nower. And it worked. It gonged twice at the turn of the millennium to indicate that two millenniums are now past. Which is funny because technically the millennium didn't start until two thousand one. That's true. But they don't care. They don't care about a lot of stuff. I'm finding out. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about the real deal. When this article was written, the real deal was just proposed, and it was going to be about sixty feet tall. That was two years ago. Well, that one is the one in Nevada. I think that's still going to be 60 feet tall. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, they just decided to start on the Texas one first? Yeah. Gotcha. Because Bezos was like, hey, here's 42 million bucks. Can we get started? Well, go ahead. Spill the beans there. I just did. Jeffrey Bezos, founder of Amazon.com, uh, is heavily involved in this to the tune of money and uh, it being built on a mountain, inside a mountain, in West Texas on his property. Yeah. So he, he owns it, sort of. 
Kind of. Uh, I get the impression that, yes, he definitely has, this project is his, but it's one of many that are going to be built around the world. Like they got approval to build one in a Smithsonian uh, just this past year. Oh, cool. Um, And uh, also Bezos, by the way, he said that the two are unrelated. It's just a cool coincidence or whatever. But he's also building a spaceport by the mountain, too. And he says that's unrelated to the clock. Yeah. He just said, hey, it's, why not? There's a spaceport. There's going to be a 10,000 year clock. We'll see what happens. But if you want to see, he's, um, funding this, uh, this space program called Blue Origin. Uh-huh. And you know how, like, in the 50s, like, science fiction rockets would, like, land just going straight up and straight down? Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's what his rockets do. And there's, you can see video of it. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Really? That I'm, I'm like, is this real? Like, we're pretty good at After Effects these days. Right. Uh, I, it's gotta be. I think it's real. Yeah. So when you got that kind of dough, you Blue, can make it happen. Blueorigin.com. I will, I will look that up, sir. So like you said, Bezos is, or the one in Texas, I guess is what you should call it. The one that's under construction is going to be about 200 feet tall. Yeah. Um, and it's gonna, it, it's out in the middle of nowhere, very purposefully. Yeah, I think it's hours from the nearest airport. Uh, it requires a full day's hike to reach the mouth of the cave opening. Yeah. Which is like a steel door. And it's a mountain rising up from the, the, uh, desert, so you have a 1500 foot climb just to get to the steel door, the first door. Yeah, so vandals, not only will you be trespassing, but you need to be a, a mountaineer if you want to go mess with this thing. Yeah. Which we don't encourage anyone no. to do. But they have the the first door is going to be jade, which is pretty cool. It's going to be hidden behind the rock face, so like you have to. I, I guess you could stumble upon it. I think that's part of the idea, the fun. Yeah, um, but you will know when you do stumble upon it that there's something very cool there because there's going to be a carved jade door in the rock face. Well, they're going to open it up when they finish. They said they are, but I'm saying like yeah. if if this. If the location or the idea or anything having to do with the clock, it'll still be there. Sure. And people can find it accidentally. Yeah, what really bothers me about this is I'm not going to know the result. You know? If you lived to a thousand, maybe you would. But I can't live to 10,000. No. Regardless. But does that bother you? Yeah, like I want to know how this ends. I want to know if in 10,000 years, if it's still running. Well, what happens if, if, okay, so just the clock. Yeah, just so you the don't clock. care what happens like ten thousand five hundred years from now. No, just the clock. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so if you want to access this thing, you go through those two doors. It's in complete darkness. It's not all lit up, which is kind of cool, right? Because I guess any kind, and they don't want any kind of electricity uh, to be needed. No, obviously while they're building it, they're using stuff, but for you know, a visitor like, later on. Yeah, exactly. A post Bronze Age visitor. <laughs> it's going to be housed in a five hundred foot tall. Tunnel about twelve feet in diameter. Yeah, a vertical tunnel. Yeah, that's like a shaft. Basically, it's yeah. a twelve foot diameter shaft that's five hundred feet tall. Very tall, and um, it's got a uh, very precise rock staircase that was carved with a robot slicing machine. Did you see video of that thing? Yeah, it is awesome. And it starts at the top, which is cool. Basically, it starts at the top with this just big hunk of rock. And just cuts in a circle, down, 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 one stair at a time. Like the golden ratio, kind of. Like yeah. a Nautilus. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. And so that's how you're going to access uh, the gears. So let's go ahead and get to that. Let's go ahead and get to the counterweights, at least. 
Well, that's the first thing you would kind of come upon yeah. if you walked in on this thing and it's completed. And the counterweights are made up of stone discs, each about the size of a car, each weighing about 10,000 pounds. Wow. Um, and we said that winding is winding and differences in temperature change are the principles that provide energy for this clock. Yeah. But um, the weights are what keep it running. Right. Um, and when you come upon the weights, you're going to come upon a platform, and you know those like old, um, those old movies or whatever where there's you know slaves or um, somebody on a ship and they're having to like crank a wheel. Like there's three guys like all moving in the same direction, and each one has like a pole that he's pushing. Yeah, like a horizontal wheel. Right. Yeah. They're going to have one of those for visitors to crank, and that will raise these enormous counterweights. And once they're fully raised, they'll have enough stored potential energy to power the clock for about a century yeah. without a single dash of sunlight or another human visitor. So that's essentially winding the clock. I think they said two or three people it takes to do this. Yeah. And um, it's a, what's it called? A capstan? I think that that is what it's called. It's called a capstan, right? Yeah. That's the horizontal wheel that's... That yeah. People, yeah. So it's pretty cool. Like it requires human intervention, but as we said, and let's go ahead and spill the beans how that works. If no one came around ever, it would still run because of uh, differences, and it collects uh, sun's rays right through a prism that sticks out at the top. Yeah, through a sapphire cupola. I bet that looks nice. Yeah, and that's the only part that's visible from outside. They said yes, and it collects the sun's uh, rays and then channels them down through metal rods. And the difference in the was it the ca- the interior cave temperature and the temperature that it collects between day and night. The changes oh, okay. in day and night, which is pretty ingenious because yeah. you think about what there probably still will be over ten thousand years. There probably will still be day and night. Yes, and that's ultimately what powers this. Well, this, with no human intervention. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this dude, though, the Alexander, uh, what was his name? Rose. I think so. He said that what they had to figure out, there's something called the equation of time, and it's not constant. Like, the Earth is slowing its rotation by about a second every couple of hundred years, Mm -hmm. and all this stuff sounds like, yeah, big deal. But when you look on a 10,000-year timeline, it is a big deal. Yeah. Um, So the Earth is slowing by about a second every couple of hundred years. Uh, It's also uh, processing on its pole every 26,000 years, mm-hmm. so they have to take that into account. And then climate change, it's going to, if poles continue to melt, water's going to be pushed out, it's going to rotate even slower. Uh-huh. So what they figured out, there was a variance, well, normally there's a variance of about 10 or 15 minutes throughout the course of a year from where the sun should be. Yeah. And they designed this thing to self-correct to still be able to pick up the sun's rays. Yeah, pretty ingeniously. But they needed to do it on a 10,000-year scale, so they basically formulated this massive equation, and they figured out how time would evolve over 10,000 years according to all these variables, and they found out it is a plus or minus, and this is worst-case scenario with climate change, uh-huh. of 23 days from where they think the sun should be over 10,000 years. Right, which means that the clock is way off. By the end of the 10,000 years. Well, but they accounted for that with this equation. They did. And the way that they accounted for it, though, also is through the solar synchronizer. Right. So every sunny day that um, at noontime, the sun will hit that prism, 
will heat up this little rod mm-hmm. that sends a signal to the clock's inner workings, so yeah. the, the smart part of the clock that keeps time all the time, no matter what. Right. Um, and says, hey, it's solar noon. Right. And they the clocks readjusts itself. So the most it's ever going to get off is, say, you know, however many days or maybe a couple of centuries without sunlight, if there's some sort of horrible nuclear winter or whatever. Right. But let's say a couple hundred years yeah. without sunlight. The next time there's sunlight, it'll say, oh, it's noon, and the clock will just readjust itself. You kind of wake back up. Yeah. That's crazy. But but it'll go back to, oh, okay, it's noon now. No matter how far it drifted, right. it will now know it's noon, solar noon. So awesome. It is very awesome. And the tem- the differences in temperature also, it's it's uh, called the thermoelectric effect. Yeah. Um. The electrons, if you have a thermoelectric device, electrons will go from uh, the hot side to the cold side. And you know as well as I do that the flow of electrons equals electricity. That's right. So that will keep things in check as well. That will keep the, the inner workings powered too. But they thought of everything. They did. And they also thought of ways to store energy or to keep from using energy, saving energy is another way to put it. Well, yeah. I mean, over time, I think they said that if the the difference in temperature is great enough, it will just store that temperature. And over a timeline, if that keeps happening, it won't even have to you know, stop and catch up. It'll just start m- operating fully mechanically by itself. Right. So here in the like order... self-winding, essentially. In, exactly. So in the order of... Um, preference or of importance, the solar energy or the diurnal temperature change energy um, goes from the inner workings of the clock. Yes. Spills over to the weights. Yes. And then if the weights are wound, then you will have the uh, Geneva drive operating, right. right? That's right. So it goes basically like the clock knowing the correct time, the clock operating and showing the correct time or whatever information that's supposed to. And then the clock making sounds. Those are the, the, the levels of importance. Oh, right. As, as, far, as far as energy distribution goes. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Because the chimes, they got to come last. They do. It's and nice and all, but... They're also, they're meant for human consumption, but if enough of that diurnal temperature difference uh, energy spills over to the weights, then the clock will ostensibly... Um, Chime when nobody's there. That's pretty cool. That's very cool. And next to his little rocket station, right? <laughs> yeah. He's got it all. He's got it all figured out. Yeah. Um. So while we mentioned the Geneva gears on, on the on the main uh, the two hundred foot one they're building, these are about eight feet in diameter each one, uh, weighing about a thousand pounds. There's and, twenty of them, right? Yeah. And it's it's pretty remarkable. I mean, if you think if you ever been inside a clock tower and seen that. It's like imagine that times twenty. And remember, the Geneva Drive system is the the mechanical computer that's com- that's calculating the algorithm to play the chimes. That's the whole reason it's there. That's right. And it's being powered by winding or the weights, winding the weights. Yes. Okay. Uh, so if you keep climbing up in this uh, thing, you will get to the primary chamber, and that is where you finally see the face of the clock, which is. The most important thing if you're building a clock. It's also the most baffling thing. Yeah. I mean, the face of this clock is, uh, or if it's anything like the the prototype, it's it, not, not it, like any clock I've ever seen. It's very awesome. Like, you can clearly say, oh, I see the century and I see the um, the millennium. 
maybe even the year. But like when I get to the star field, I imagine like so the star field's being displayed. Yeah, I get that. I think that that means that if it were nighttime and you could see the star field and you went outside and looked up, you, know you would see the same stars, right? Right. Okay. But the horizons are what's throwing me off the most. The REET, R-E-T-E. Yeah. It shows horizons. I, I don't, don't understand that. what that wh- what that means or what you're going to get from that. Fortunately, and I haven't seen it, but supposedly there's going to be a manual or right. some sort of explanation. Yeah, I'm sure they'll have it some sort of, uh, if, once they open it up for people to come visit, there'll be some like little button you push and it'll be Morgan Freeman's voice <laughs> explaining how it works <laughs> or what the horizon means. Right. Um, if you want to know the time of day, though, you have to ask the clock, Chuck. I thought this was one of the coolest parts of this whole deal. Yeah. Because they built it to to operate at its most frugal over the years, obviously. Right. And one thing that you don't need is a current readout if no one's there to read it. Right. And so they says, well, why don't you ask the clock, like you said. So whatever time you see when you approach the clock is the last time that it read when someone wound not the the clock itself but the clock's face right the display the, yeah the clock's display so there's two ways to wind it the cap stand that raises the weights yeah and then there's the there's a little hand wheel that just one single person can do to wind the clock the clock's display and it'll correct itself and say it's now, you know, whatever time it is. Yeah. And here's the horizon, which Josh doesn't get. Right. And here's where the moon and sun phases are. And yeah. here's what year it is with which a zero is, in the front of it. It's pretty cool. It's very cool. So the clock always knows what time it is. It's just not necessarily displaying it. Yeah, it's just not going to tell you. Until it's asked. Pretty cool. So, Chuck, um, there's a, some pretty obvious reasons to choose the inside of a mountain to put this clock in. Uh, earthquake protection, nuclear sure. bomb protection, mountains Elements. are they're they're long lasting. Yeah, um, but there's other reasons that they chose the uh, interior of a mountain as well, like um, the differences in temperature between seasons and day within the mountain um, are very minimal, which means that you're not going to have a freeze thaw cycle, right. which is apparently very corrosive. Yeah, but it's great enough to where you're going to get energy out of it. Right, especially at the top. Yeah. So remember, like, there's the mountain top that, that from the entrance, the bottom of the clock to yeah. the top is 500 feet, but the clock's only 200 feet. Yeah. So that extra 300 feet is above there is where the, the temperature differences will really right. be noticeable. Right. Uh, so they picked a very good place, and also the one in Nevada has got similar conditions, I think. Yeah. So, which is why they picked that. High dry desert. High dry desert. Uh, and then the parts. This is remarkable to me. Um, if you're going to construct something that lasts for 10,000 years, okay. you're not going to want to throw a bunch of, uh, 30 weight oil in there. Right. Because oil, uh, has the potential to fail and leak, and oil will attract dirt. Like crazy. Yep. And little hairs and like um, fuzzies Tiny from your sweater. Little pieces of grit over 10,000 years will stop any machine from running. Right. So what they did was they, uh, borrowing from uh, NASA, who originally developed ceramic bearings to use on satellites. So because you don't want to have satellites that need oiling either. Right. Uh, they used uh, ceramic, which nowadays is, can be harder than diamonds, ceramic bearings. Like the moving parts are ceramic. Yeah. And remember earlier I said, like, humans haven't made too many things that have lasted 10,000 years. 
ceramic pot sherds are one example of something. Boom. Uh, we have pot sherds that are like 17,000 years old. And that's just like from a pot. What they're making yeah. today should be able to last way longer. Way longer. And because these parts move so slowly, they don't require any lubrication. So the ceramic ball bearings are keeping the metal parts away from one another. Because if you have two like metals that are in contact and aren't moving really, like the millennium dial, yeah. um, basically won't move the whole time you or I are alive or <laughs> yeah. our children are alive. Right. Um, and, and if you have the same kind of metal and like one gear touching the other gear, um, they're just going to fuse together. You know why? Micro vibration. I did not enlighten me. No, it's micro vibration. Like it's not moving, quote unquote, hmm. but micro vibration over 10,000 years will cause it to weld itself. That's pretty cool. And that's if it's a like metal. And if they're unlike, it, they will corrode over time. Isn't that right? Yeah, it's um, galvanic corrosion. If they're dissimilar metals, they'll just eat into each other. So either either way, you don't want these metals touching one another. So the ceramic ball bearings that don't need any lubrication are perfect. That's right. The rest of it is made from uh, 316 stainless steel, which this Alexander guy said that'll last 10,000 years. And, and even if it starts to rust... The movements of this clock, because it, it, it moves so slowly and because it's so large, um, the the precision doesn't need to be like thousandths yeah. of an inch. That's what's so cool. It can be like a quarter of an inch. Yeah. Well, there's plenty of room for rust. Right. So if there is rust, it really doesn't matter. And I also saw where he, he said in the video that uh, all the gear teeth were cut three-dimensionally. And uh, what that means is it uses rollers to roll the gear so it's a rolling mechanism instead of what he called a scrubbing friction uh-huh. so I guess a rolling friction is much uh, easier on the parts than scrubbing nice. and um, I was reading a, a Wired article on it and the reporter said that uh, he came upon a Geneva wheel remember they're 8 feet in diameter yeah these are um, and they ha- it had the ceramic ball bearings in it and he could turn it very easily with just like gentle pressure from his finger wow so they're going to be working just fine I can't. I want to visit this thing when it's done, at least. I know I won't see the end, but I'd like to be there for the beginning. Well, you can actually. You can go join the Long Now Foundation at longnow.org, right? Yeah, they operate on donations. I don't think we ever even mentioned it's a private organization, right? And funded by people like Bezos. And I think the 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 um, basic membership costs like eight bucks a month. Um, you probably have a pretty good idea of where your money's going. Uh, What's their website? Longnow.org. Longnow.org, and then there's also now 10,000yearclock.net. And that's Bezos's website. Yeah, and it, there's not a whole lot there yet, but... No, I mean, it just I'm gave sure some yeah. overview, but... Um, there's there we we left out this one part in the one in Texas, Bezos's Millennium Clock. There's going to be little... Uh, alcoves, different rooms. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a one-year room, a 10-year room, 100, a 1,000, and 10,000-year room. And, like, they're leaving it to later civilizations to figure out what artifact to put in there. Yeah. But in the one-year room, they're putting the Ori, which tracks the motion of the... It calculates the mo- movement of the planets. Right. And it also has an animation of, uh, I think, Voyager 2 on this grand tour of, like, some of the outer planets. Awesome. Um, and that's going in the one-year... And they're going to figure out what to put in the 10 year. So they're soliciting, um, ideas from anybody. I saw that. That's crazy. Uh, if you have an idea of what you, what should be put in the 10 year alcove. But and I guess some of that stuff would require electricity though, right? 
I no, I, I don't think so. In the side rooms, no. I don't think any of it's going to. Oh wow! Or if it does, it will just be a thermoelectricity. Right. Yeah. So uh, I feel like we covered that pretty well. Yeah. Ten thousand year clock. I mean, it's a way more basic than it appears. Like when you first look at it, it's like simple gears moving. Pendulum swinging. It's also going incredibly up ingenious, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. The way they put it together, it overcame problems that yeah. it may not encounter for thousands of years. Very smart dudes yeah. and ladies. Uh, if you want to learn more about the 10,000-year clock, you can type in 10,000-year clock in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And that, I said search bar, so that means it's time for listener mail. That's right, Josh. I'm going to call this... Uh, the cone snail saved my life. Yes. Remember when we talked about the cone snail? No. In the Venom podcast? No. It wasn't Venom. What was it? It was... Uh, Probably. Was it just called Venom? No, it's like, what's the most venomous animal on Earth? There you go. That's right. This is from David in Miami. Hey, guys. Love the show. I recently listened to the show on Venom, and you mentioned the cone snail. Five years ago, cone snail venom saved my life. In 1994, I was diagnosed with cancer... And due to the cancer, chronic pain. After many years of failed attempts to control my pain with conventional medication, I was extremely frustrated and still suffering intolerable pain. Luckily, I found out about the Zyconotide cone snail venom. Because remember, I think we talked about scorpion venom being used in cancer. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, The only problem with using the cone snail venom to control pain is that I needed an implant. It can't be taken in pill form. Uh, One needs to be implanted with a hockey puck-sized implant that slowly releases the medication into my intrathecal fluid. What? Which is the fluid surrounding the spinal cord. I might be pronouncing it wrong. Uh, Every three months, I need to go in for a refill. So using a small needle, this guy's like Iron Man. Yeah. uh, The doctor refills the pump that's inside of his body with cone snail venom. It has been a godsend and greatly improved my quality of life. And some days I am completely pain-free. That is cool. So, David Miami, kudos to you, sir, and continued good health. Hats off to your medical pioneering. Absolutely. Uh, what's old is new again. And thank you, Cone Snail. Yeah, thanks, Cone Snail. Uh, let's see. If you have an email about a past episode and how it affected your life, we always want to hear that kind of thing. Sure. Uh, you can... Tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. That's our handle. Um, you can join us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Stuff We Should Know. Uh, oh, also, we have a newsletter. You can go to uh, Stuff You Should Know's Facebook page, and there's a tab to sign up for the Stuff You Should Know electronic email newsletter. It's all free. It's over on the left side under our picture on the very bottom. You'll see uh, SYSK Newsletter. Yeah, and it's pretty cool. It comes out what, once a week, right? Is it something like that? It co- it's it has like our f- links to some of our favorite articles, just cool stuff. Link to the newest episode. It's just neat. It's it's one of the better things you'll get in your inbox. Agreed. Um, and speaking of inboxes, you can send us a good old fashioned email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks dot com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. 